Let's read together first or second chronicles 33 verses 1 through 11. Second chronicles 33 1 through 11. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He also erected altars for the Baals and made Asherim, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hanan, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, and practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them according to all the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses. Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Lord willing, I would like to consider with you some surprising passages in Scripture. And one might consider a large number of passages under that theme, especially if we consider the fact that most of Christ's teachings were were met with, with shock and surprise at the hearers. But I've selected just a few maybe less commonly considered passages for us to consider today, <clears throat> one of which is, is what we've just read there in Second Chronicles 33, where we see that King Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was a corrupt man. <clears throat> it's hard to believe that, that such a man could be king of Israel. His father, Hezekiah, had torn down the high places, and Manasseh rebuilds them. In fact, he goes on and and builds additional altars for the false gods. For for the Baals, he makes wooden symbols for false gods. And the text tells us that he offers up human sacrifices and practices witchcraft. Well, Jesus said, by your fruits, you will know them. So we can say that Manasseh was not just an evil man, but that he was a very evil man. For we find in the end of verse 6, that he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. 
the name of the Lord was to be exalted alone in Israel. But this corrupt, vile man had the gall to put idols in the house of the Lord. What he was doing was stealing glory from God and giving it instead to idols. The Lord had said that he would establish Israel forever in the land that he had given to them if only they would obey him and keep his commandments. But we read there in verse 9, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Manasseh had a charge to lead God's people forward, but he'd turned them backward. The Lord had brought them out of slavery in Egypt, but Manasseh had gone backward, not forward. If you're familiar with Second Chronicles, you may ask yourself, surely Manasseh had seen the way that God had dealt with his father, Hezekiah. How God had prospered him when Hezekiah cut down the idols and restored the temple. How God had brought great joy, the text tells us, to Jerusalem as they turned back to God. That surely Manasseh must have seen the wrath of God turn away from his dad when he humbled the pride of his own heart. But the answer to all that is no. Manasseh thought very little of the grace of God. He learned nothing from how God dealt with Hezekiah, his father. Manasseh was not only corrupt himself, but he led the nation to turn away from the one true God. Manasseh was the worst sort of stumbling block. For others, Jesus said to his disciples, as recorded in Luke 17, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come, that it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than to cause others to stumble. Woe to him through whom stumblings come, So this man, Manasseh, stands self-condemned in the text that we've just read. Is there any hope for such a person as this? Is there any hope for the one who calls evil good and good evil, who puts darkness before light and light before darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, like Isaiah 5.20 says? What was the outcome of Manasseh's sin? Captivity. He thought that he could be free from the one true God and make little gods of his own. But what does the Lord do? He brings along Assyria, who put a a hook through his nose. That's what it means there. And led him away in bronze chains to Babylon as a slave. Well, what do we have here? Well, on one hand, we have an archaic account of Jewish history, about 650 years B.C. But on the other hand, what do we have? We have in this self-same record an account of modern man, 
right? As though it were hot off the press, you can feel the heat radiating from these pages, which tell us of modern man who has witnessed the race of God, which has been poured out on him, the sun and the rain poured out on him day after day, yet Men who not only refuse to worship God, but men who steal away the glory of God to build up for themselves idols more perverse and more numerous than the generations before them. Men who pay no attention to the voice of God and who delight in turning others from God. Men who promise others freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And just like Manasseh was bound in chains and and was led away to Babylon, so people today who refuse to worship and obey the Lord are held fast by the cords of their own sin. Proverbs 5:22. They're they're headed for hell. Well, what is the hope for such people? Psalm 73:27 says for behold those who are far from you will perish you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you what does god do with people who are unfaithful to him he destroys them what is the hope for a modern man who is just as unfaithful to god today as manasseh was thousands of years ago well read with me verse 12 And as we read it, ask yourself, can it be that these things are real? How how can this actually be true? It doesn't seem possible. Verse 12, when he, that's Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was, that is, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What a surprising passage. God is full of mercy to the most wicked and vile people if they will only just humble themselves before God and cry out to him in prayer. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. God has mercy on Manasseh and delivers him from his slavery. He brings him back as king in Jerusalem because he humbles himself. Well, the passage goes on to indicate that God did something to Manasseh in his distress to break him and cause him to seek God. Manasseh repents. He removes the idols from the house of the Lord. He casts them out of the city. He starts worshiping God. It seems like there's real repentance in Manasseh's life, because his life was changed. So the first consideration is that God is full of mercy to all who call on him. 
Psalm 103 verse 10 says he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But even in light of this surprising passage, there may be those who think so great of their own sin that they do not feel they can call on God. And I think it's a common problem with people today. Men think that they have to do something before they can actually go to God. And there may be some degree of right thinking in this in terms of the holiness of God and our own sinfulness and inability. But the problem comes in when men end with the fact of their own sin instead of going on to look to God. So the second passage I would bring to your attention would be Psalm 66, verses 18 and 19. Psalm 66, 18 and 19, which says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. This is true. Why should God hear you? Why should God hear any of us? We are sinful. God is holy. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? You say, I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I can't come to God. But what does the text go on to say? If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Second Chronicles 3.19 says that God was entreated in prayer by Manasseh. God heeded his prayer. What a shock. God is responding to Manasseh. We know that every man of himself is unclean. There is none righteous, no, not one. Who am I that God should hear me? But certainly God has heard. The text tells us. Another surprise. You recall the man covered with leprosy. How when he saw Jesus, he fell down and implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean in Luke 4. The man knew that he was unclean. He didn't treasure his leprosy. He he wanted to be rid of it. He wanted to be free from it. He knew that he couldn't cleanse himself and that Jesus had the power to free him from his disease. So he cried out to Jesus and Jesus healed him. So the second consideration is that God hears the prayers of sinners who cry out to him for salvation as they are. Doesn't seem possible. The Christian should never lose sight of the wonder of these fundamental but surprising things in scripture. God hears the prayers of sinners as they are. Well, you may still say that you have a particular difficulty in all this because you know that you're a sinner, but you are a slave to sin in the sense that you love your sin. It is mastering you, it is controlling you, it is a part of you and is reigning in you, and you do not feel particularly sorry for your sin. You enjoy it. So you hesitate to call on God because you know that your fundamental desire, that that your heart is not right. You may identify with Psalm 65.3, which says, Iniquities prevail against me. You are stuck in the pit. 
You cannot see out. You don't know what is up or down anymore. Well, Scripture is shocking for even this sort of person if he will only continue on in the Word of God. Psalm 65.3, iniquities prevail against me. But again, that's only the first half of the verse. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. God is merciful to all who call on him. God hears the prayers of sinners as they are. God is able to save men who are slaves to sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. God forgives the unforgivable. Even if you know you love your sin, cry out to God in faith still and ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you. You don't need to turn there per se, but in Isaiah 8, we see a common tendency, and that is for people to live in fear. People are oftentimes worried that something catastrophic is going to happen to them or to someone they love. And I think it's a root of anxiety for people today. Well, in Isaiah chapter 8, there is a tendency for people to worry about various conspiracies around them because of all of the political unrest that they were experiencing as a nation. There was no stability around them at all. And the Lord tells the people through Isaiah that they are not to fear what men fear or to be in dread, but that it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Men are called to fear God, not men. Men are called to dread God not world events. Now, if we think of God in human terms, this is a stumbling block for many people. Why should God ask us to dread him and to fear him? Men are thinking of God as some sort of peevish little man who's jealous when he doesn't get enough attention. <clears throat> but we have to think rightly about God. God is not a man. God isn't like a man, he's not like anything we have seen or known because he is eternal and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. He is the only necessary being that exists or has ever existed. God is the beginning and the end. He is a consuming fire. No man can see God and live, Scripture tells us. He's holy. And this God calls us to render to him a right reverence and awe. We are to bow down to him alone and submit our minds and our emotions, ultimately only to him. And as men turn away from regarding and fearing what mere men fear and dread in this world and instead come to stand in awe of God, again, we see something completely shocking and surprising occur. Again, there in Isaiah 8, 13, and 14, which say, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear 
and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. You fear God, you dread God, you revere God, and then he becomes for you a sanctuary, a holy place, a place to go to, to dwell in. Men stumble over this text as that passage goes on to emphasize. They stumble badly. Many have stumbled over this and will stumble over this fact that if you do not bow down to God and worship him, you have no safe place. But if you do humble yourself and reverence God, he will be a hiding place for you. A, ref, a refuge from the storm and a shade from the heat, Isaiah says. So a fourth consideration is the Lord is a sanctuary to those who reverence him. We must not stumble over this. There are just a few who are being saved. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The Lord is a sanctuary to those who reverence him. A right fear of God is the most glorious thing that a man can have. This is the <clears throat> scriptural position, and it is, needless to say, in polar contrast to a worldly philosophy We've already seen that a vile, despicable man who's enslaved to sin and is on his way to hell, a man who has ignored the Lord his entire life, but who then calls out to God. He calls out to a God who is surrounded by angels who dare not even look at God and who all the while are calling out, holy, 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 that God has mercy on that man, <laughs> that God hears the prayers of sinners, that God forgives the unforgivable, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. And as we bow down to him in reverence, he becomes for us a sanctuary. A right fear of God is the most glorious thing a man can have. As it says in Psalm 47, 1, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. Why? Why should we shout to God with the voice of joy? For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Scripture says that men become joyful when they come to see that God is awesome and terrifying and worthy of reverence. <laughs> Brethren, I would suggest to you that this is true worship, to come before God joyful in fear of him. Or as Isaiah 4, 6 puts it, when men come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Trembling to the Lord, and to his goodness. How's that for a surprising passage? True worship is joyfully trembling 
at the goodness of God. You see the paradox in the Christian life. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Bow down before God. Bring yourself low, and he welcomes you to himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You who are gentle and meek and lowly in this world, who have men trampling on you in this world, what does scripture say? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, one final thing we consider in Scripture this morning, which also stands in contrast to human reason, is in the area of greatness in the Christian walk, in the Christian way of life. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's Matthew 20, 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. You look at the man of success in the world, He's established himself. He wants others to know that he has authority over them. He lords it over them, Christ says. Might is right. Only the fit survive. You have to fight your way to the top, defend your own interests, buy out your competition, right? This is the basic world philosophy for most people today, who Christ says, actually, in the, in the Luke account of Matthew 20, want to be known as benefactors. You've, you've seen their plaques, right, all over the place. This item was made possible by the tremendous generosity of Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, right? <laughs> but it is not this way among you, Christ says. If you want to become great, you must be a servant, a slave, a nobody, in the eyes of the world. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There you have the greatest mystery, the highest paradox one could consider. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into the world to be served and to give his life a ransom for many. He did not come to recline at the table. Luke twenty two twenty seven says, <clears throat> I am among you as the one who serves. So what are we to do? One final passage. Turn with me <clears throat> to Luke 12, 35. Luke 12, 35. <clears throat> Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they 
may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Common position, right? A great man has a great house. He has servants under him. He expects the servants to open the door when he knocks. They should be on the alert, ready, welcoming him back. He's just gone out for a bit. He will be back. But what is the shock here as we read on? Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves unbelievable great men with slaves under them don't wait on their slaves but then again great men don't love their slaves do they they pay their slaves perhaps But we're not like that, are we? We have a heavenly Father who loves us. And he tells us here that if we are only on the alert, eager eager for for his coming, that when he appears, it's for our benefit. He's going to gird himself and serve us. It seems wrong to even say these things. It's so unbelievable, but that is what Scripture says right before us. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. So what have we considered this morning? Things beyond human understanding, things which are impossible to men and which seems so unlikely, that God is merciful to even the most vile sinner who calls on him, that God hears the prayers of sinners as they are, that God saves men who are slaves to sin, that God is a sanctuary to those who fear him, that true worship is joyfully trembling at the goodness of God, that whoever wishes to become great will serve, that the Lord will gird himself to serve those who are ready for him when he returns. May these amazing truths remind us not to be wise in our own eyes, May they remind us not to trust our own perspectives, but to submit ourselves to the word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path.